0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Here's what Jessica Leahy writes in her book, The Gift of Failure. She says, I became a parent and a middle school teacher in the same year, and these twin roles have shaped the way I've raised my children and educated my students. Over the course of my first decade raising two boys and teaching hundreds of children, I began to feel a creeping sense of unease, a suspicion that something was rotten in the state of my parenting. But it was only when my elder child entered middle school that my worlds collided and the source of the problem became clear to me. Today's overprotective, failure-avoidant parenting style has undermined the competence, independence, and academic potential of an entire generation. The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learned to Let Go so the Children can Succeed, was a New York Times bestseller. It's now out in paperback. Jessica Leahy is an educator, speaker, and writer. She's uh, been the English, Latin, and writing teacher in middle school and high school for more than a decade, writes the biweekly parent-teacher conference advice column for the New York Times, and is a contributing writer with The Atlantic, appears as a commentator on Vermont Public Radio, and uh, she earned her uh, law degree from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with a concentration in juvenile and education law. She lives in New Hampshire with her husband and uh, two children. Jessica Leahy, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Appreciate you uh, being with us. Um, I believe uh, the the genesis of this book was a... it was an article in The Atlantic, right, that went viral?
1: Right, uh, in, in 2013, early 2013,
0: yep. Seemed to hit a nerve. I, I guess maybe a lot of parents out there wondering how they're doing.
1: Well, it was interesting. that I had, I had been thinking about this for a while, but it wasn't until an article came out in Australia that quoted teachers and uh, guidance counselors about... Sort of the behaviors they were seeing in kids in that were you know in their classroom that had been overparented, and I certainly had been thinking about this for a while, but hadn't really been able to articulate it because I can't I can't really talk about my own students, and I certainly can't you know if I teach at a very small school, it just wouldn't you just can't do it. So when this article came out, I was able to actually use the quotes from that article from that article um, from that study, and and it seemed to just open the floodgates. It was a lot of teachers. It was a lot of pastors. It was a lot of coaches saying, yes, yes, we're seeing the same thing, and we haven't been able to articulate it uh, either. So I think, you know, yes, parents definitely um, pushed that article along, but I was really surprised to see that it was teachers and coaches and pastors and anyone really who works with kids.
0: Uh, and you say you had an epiphany. You'd, you'd been a middle school teacher for a while. You'd been raising your two sons.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that epiphany. I- Well, what was interesting is I I knew that my students were being overparented, and, you know, I was up on my high horse sort of looking down on those parents getting very upset because I could tell it was affecting my students, but I couldn't really figure out how it was affecting their learning. I knew something was going on, but I I couldn't put the two sides of the equation together. And then a student of mine uh, admitted that she had become so obsessed with her grades and the points and all of that and her perfectionism that she didn't enjoy learning anymore. And, and, you know, I was sort of at peak anger at that point with her parents. And I came home from school that very day and, and realized that my 9-year-old child couldn't tie his own shoes, which was completely, utterly my fault. Um, you know, I'd been doing it for him for years, just sort of hadn't hadn't really thought about it. And so it wasn't really until I sort of had that, that lightning bolt moment of, oh, I, I can't really be up on my <laughs> horse <laughs> upset with the parents of my students because I'm doing the exact same thing. So it was, that was sort of led me to, to, to start looking for answers and start figuring out why exactly over-parenting was causing my students to not enjoy learning and to be, as it turns out, a lot less teachable and, and to not learn as well. It really affects learning when a kid... Um, doesn't really have to push through and find, find answers for themselves.
0: I wonder if you could, uh, 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 this is on uh, Roman numeral uh, 23, mm-hmm. I wonder if you'd read me the part of that uh, essay. This seems like an extraordinary young woman. A, <laughs> uh, she's very self-aware. Um, this uh, eighth grade. <laughs> it,
1: you know, it was kind of pushed into my face. I couldn't ignore it much longer. Um I can read the whole entire thing if you'd like. Yeah. yeah. Starting with my flash of insight. My flash of insight had been a long time coming. Yes, I had been uncomfortable with my own over-parenting for a while, but I have to credit my students, again, for teaching me what I was too blind to see. Each year, my eighth graders write essays about an experience that has shaped their education. And after much struggle, one of my most tightly wound and anxiety-ridden students handed in the following paragraph. Some people are afraid of heights, Others are afraid of water. I am afraid of failure, which for the record is called etichophobia. I am so afraid of failing that I lose focus on what actually matters, learning. In focusing on the outcome, I lose the value of the actual assignment and deprive myself of learning. She went on to recount all the ways this fear has held her back in school and athletics, but those first few sentences stopped me cold. Her experience as a student, my professional experience with her parents, my own parenting, and my son's fears all came together in her admission. The student's parents are wonderful and kind and caring, and they never intended to create this sort of fear in their child. And frankly, the fallout would have been their own problem to deal with, save for the fact that their private choices, the private choices parents make, that undermine their child's social, academic, and emotional development eventually come in conflict with a teacher's ability to teach their child. And I go on later on to talk about the fact that you know that same day I <laughs> realized my son couldn't tie his own shoes.
0: I want you to tell that. it sounds
1: funny now, but you know at the time it was utterly devastating to me.
0: Yeah, I imagine it's something that simple, but it can be very important. I want to have mm-hmm. you tell that story, but I want to back up and the sure. the emotions I feel. When I read that paragraph from this young lady, you know, I just want to hug her and protect her even more from yeah. the world. You know, that's the that's the impulse, right? The that we're well, if, pushing it, back if it against. if
1: it makes you feel any better, she has turned out great. Oh, good, good. <laughs> I'm still friends with her family, still friends with her. She's a fantastic kid, and she has turned out great. Uh,
0: excellent. That, that's that's good news. Um, so, tell me about your your. This is your younger son. Mm-hmm. I think. And he, he yep. found out he couldn't couldn't tie his shoes and, and you're to blame, I guess. You know,
1: you well a- yeah, I mean I think my older child, uh, much like many older children, I was an older child myself. I you know, I was very independent from early age. My younger child just likes, you know, he, it's fine with him to be taken care of a little bit more and he's he's my baby you know I I, I let myself and, it, and he tended to get a little dramatic when things got tough you know when that first time I sat down with him to you know help him learn to tie his shoes he flipped out you know it, it was hard and so he just kind of went boneless and laid on the floor and moaned about how hard it was to tie his <laughs> shoes and blah 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 and you know so I, I did it for him just that once I said just this once I'll do it for you and then that once, kind of turned into every day, and then, you know, I went ahead and started buying shoes that didn't have laces, <laughs> the slip-on shoes, because, you know, frankly, L O Bean is right down the street. I live in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, it just, I made it easy for him to never have to learn to tie his shoes.
0: So, what happened when you decided to change that, and make him tie his shoes?
1: Well, you know, I realized, it, it, you know, as we c- tend to find out with kids that you can't really Um, have anything productive happen when it's in the heat of the moment when someone's already really upset. So, um, you know, I had a snack ready when he came home from school and I was rested and he was rested. And I said, look, you know, I I made a mistake. I've been doing this and that's made me not as good of a mom. I thought it made me a better mom to help you and help you not feel frustrated. But that actually makes me a worse mom. And so we're going to learn to tie your shoes today. And, you know, I, I made sure it was sort of relaxed and easy, and, and, you know, he tried, and it was hard, and he kept trying, and I kept encouraging him. And, you know, I think the problem is is that we just we get so tied up in those daily emergencies of we have to get out the door fast. We're in a rush. We're overscheduled. We're, you know, this homework assignment is so important. It has to get done. This soccer practice is so important. This has to get done right now that we don't see the forest for the trees. We don't see this sort of long-term journey our kid is on and, and that journey that's a long distance that's a long haul thing and, and sometimes we have to just take a breath and sit down and say you know a little bit of struggle really truly is going to be worth it in the long run and he was so proud of himself when he when he finally could do it mm. cuz he'd been humiliated he was so embarrassed that he couldn't do it he was hiding it from everybody
0: mm uh and and that's you know as as parents we'd, we we want to shield our kids from everything but i guess we're doing too much i wonder when you when you had your epiphany uh, i don't know how long it was uh, that you decided you i guess you probably sat down with your husband i'm reading here yep. a passage you you and your husband didn't want to just totally spring this on your kids. And right. so you, you had a you had a family meeting. I love this yep. part. Uh, yes, the teen rolled his eyes. Yep, absolutely. My, my younger son asked <laughs> to be excused from the table after two minutes, yep. uh, which is, sounds pretty typical. So, yep. but, but then you launched into this. Uh, and I wonder if you could uh, talk about when your, I can't remember which son this was, left his homework, forgot his homework. yeah. That was a big moment well, for you.
1: Also, backing up, just so you know, you know, one of the things that I think got their attention, that let led them to listen to us a little bit more, is that we admitted that we were wrong, and that we'd been doing too much for them, and that we had we thought we were going about this parenting thing the best way we knew how, and and uh, and we had been wrong about some things, and so I think anytime you admit to your kid that you're not perfect and and, you know the secret is they already know we're not perfect but I think anytime you admit to your kid that maybe you've been going about things wrong you know it does it number one it models some great behavior for them and number two it it um it catches them unaware and so I think that that sort of helped us get our foot in the door with getting them to listen to us but you know we we sort of coasted along on that for a while and thought we were doing um pretty well and then as you mentioned, our, our younger son left his homework sitting on the table. He had had, he had been forgetting his homework a lot actually. And, um, so he left his homework on the coffee table one morning and I knew I couldn't take it to him at school, um, for a lot of reasons, including the fact that I live in a very small town and people kind of knew I was writing this book. And, um, and I also sort of knew it was the wrong thing to do. And so I, I couldn't take him to it, to him at school. And I, took to Facebook because I didn't know what else to do, and I wrote up on Facebook that I, you know, couldn't take this homework to school to him because we had been working so hard on helping him to learn to remember his homework. I felt like I would be throwing away all that effort. And a friend of mine who writes this wonderful blog um, called Grown and Flown for, about parenting older children, she said she thought I was wrong that um, families have each other's backs and that if no one else has each other's backs, we, you know, model for our kids that family has each other's backs and that, and, you know, if your husband left his phone charger at home, you'd take it to him at work. And I said, oh, you know, crud, I, I've done that a million times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't take the homework to him and mainly because I realized, yeah, I, I, I would take my husband's stuff to him at work, but that's, I'm not, he's not my kid and, uh when Finnegan came home, that's my younger child's name, when he came home that day, what was revealed to me was that I was absolutely right not to take his homework because he ended up having a meeting with his teacher where his teacher said, look, you know, this has been happening for a long time and it's time for you to come up with a strategy that works for you. And that meeting led to the strategy that he used, he's been using, actually. It's been almost four years now. Um, the strategy he uses to not forget his homework and to not forget a lot of other things actually mm. and that strategy's been working for him beautifully for 4 years and if i had taken that homework that meeting would never have happened so it was a really big day actually for us
0: it's interesting you uh, you uh, and this is i guess it's typical of of our world you took to facebook to <laughs> you, you know, yeah. to 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 yeah. air your inner struggle, and then then you yeah. had you had a community that you could respond to, um, and that there's good and bad, right? Because the the yeah, bad is since we. I'm
1: friends with a lot of parenting writers. You yeah. know, most of the parenting writers out there whose books you've read, I'm probably friends with them on Facebook, <laughs> and they have a lot of opinions. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> the other part of this is competition, isn't it? It's it's one yeah. th- one thing you one theme in your book is. We need to put the child's needs ahead of our own needs, and our our needs as parents are to show ourselves to be good parents. It's a kind of yeah, it's a competition.: I think
1: A lot of parents actually come up to me after my speaking. I speak all over the country and about this stuff, and a lot of parents will come up to me afterwards and say, yes i um I really I know it's time I have to back off, I have to stop doing so much for my kids, but I don't want to be the first one to do it. Um, there's, you know, I'm afraid that my kid's teacher will think that I'm a, I am ai don't care enough or that I'm not, you know, checking the homework enough or that I'm just not, that I'm not paying enough attention and that something will slip through the cracks and someone will look at that and say, oh, she's not doing her job. She's not really caring enough about being a parent. So I think that supporting each other is going to be the way that we do this in the same way that we tend to rile each other up when, about the negative stuff, you know, standing on the sidelines of the soccer game when we're all talking about the tutoring and the traveling soccer leagues and the, the cello uh, recital that's coming up on Saturday. We tend to rile each other up into this state of, like, panic and fear that we're not doing enough. But at the same time, we can also be there for each other when we reinforce that, that idea that maybe, maybe doing less is, is doing more for our kids. Um, you know, we are our own worst enemy, and we tend to be our own, you know, best support when we rally together about the right thing.
0: I wonder if I have you read another passage of uh, this is uh, in the introduction, Roman numeral mm-hmm. eighteen,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Uh, beginning the second paragraph. We did the best we could. Uh, this mm-hmm. is this ta- is uh, <laughs> some funny parts of this. Um, it, this gets into illustrating in from your life the the,
1: com- <laughs>
0: the competitive nature of parenting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We did the best we could with the skills we'd worked so hard to acquire. Schedules of meetings and project management schemes were repurposed into color-coded school activity and carpool calendars scheduled down to the minute. Management skills formerly used to guide teams of employees toward quarterly sales goals were appropriated to plan semester-long campaigns to help children improve their grades. I know this because I've used every trick in my college and law school educated quiver. When I, returned to work at, when I returned to work after my elder son, Ben, was born, I used spreadsheets and database software to chronicle his first words, the input and output of his digestive system, and his reading progress. These were the tools at my disposal, and since I'd worked so long and hard to acquire them, it hardly seemed right to let them go to waste. I took comfort in these measures when faced with the silent, sucking void I found when I searched for clues that would validate my parenting. The only other ally I found in this endeavor was my son's pediatrician, who at least provided me with growth charts that plotted my son's my infant's progress against the other rival babies out there. If his weight and height were just above the 50th percentile on the growth chart, great, I'd done some good, solid mothering. If his BMI was a little lower than average, well, well done me. I got some bonus points for staving off the epidemic of childhood obesity. At the end of the appointment, though, I needed the good doctor to bestow judgment and answer my unspoken plea. Do I qualify for honors or, or this parenting business pass fail? What about those other parents out there in the waiting room? Did I beat them? Come on, help me out here, doc. What's my grade?
0: <laughs> and you're, you know, you, I, I think you are, you know, kind of an overachiever. But uh, I think it's typical of of a lot of parents. We we yeah. want to know how we're doing, and we want to know in relation to and competition with other parents.
1: Right. And uh, honestly, it was really interesting. I I couldn't believe how competitive I was with other parents at the exact same time that my relationships with my friends that, you know, was sort of unrelated to our children had become less competitive. I was really reveling these sort of grown-up relationships I had that weren't based on competition. And then all of a sudden, kids came into it, and I realized, oh, man, I'm competing with babies, (laughs) (laughs) looking at other babies to sort of pit my baby against them. And that's just crazy. And I think... You know, it comes down to this, you know, if we don't have the grades or the performance reviews or whatever, you know, and we're looking at our own kids to sort of fulfill that, um, to give us our own progress report on our parenting That's so unfair to do to them. They just—they don't deserve that, and that's a lot of pressure to put on their very narrow shoulders.
0: Let's take a break. When we come back more with uh, Jessica Leahy, her New York Times bestseller, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed is now out in a paper book. Jessica Leahy is an educator, speaker, and writer. She's been an English, Latin, and writing teacher in middle and high school for more than a decade. And she writes the biweekly parent-teacher conference uh, advice column for the New York Times as a contributing writer to The Atlantic. Appears as a commentator on Vermont Public Radio. Um, we'll have more, including an email from Alec, which will get us in the very serious uh, topic, p- potential connections uh, to high rate of suicide among teenagers in Utah. That and more following this break. This is Science by the Slice. The common side-blotched lizard, which can survive up to seven years, is found throughout the deserts of the western United States and Mexico. USU ecologist Susanna French is exploring environmental effects on the reptile, which grows up to six inches in length. The lizard is very territorial and has variable lifespans across its range, she says, which enables researchers to track individuals. French is investigating whether environmental changes, including those caused by human disturbances, result in modifications to the lizard's stress responsiveness, reproductive success, and immune function.
1: This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at utahhumanities.org.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Here's what Jessica Leahy writes in The Gift of Failure, her New York Times bestseller, which is now out in paperback. She says, we have taught our kids to fear failure, and in doing so, we have blocked the surest and clearest path to their success— That's certainly not what we meant to do, and we did it for all the best and well-intentioned reasons, but it's what we have wrought nevertheless. Out of a love and desire to protect our children's self-esteem, we've bulldozed every uncomfortable bump and obstacle out of their way, clearing the manicured path we hoped would lead to success and happiness. Unfortunately, in so doing, we have deprived our children of the most important lessons of childhood. The setbacks, mistakes, miscalculations, and failures we have shoved out of our children's way are the very experiences that teach them how to be resourceful, persistent, innovative, and resilient citizens of the world. We're opening the phone lines here, and here's how you can reach the, uh, the program with your question or comment. Tell us about your parenting. 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can reach us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Jessica Leahy is with us. She's author of The Gift of Failure. Uh, Jessica Leahy, you do a bit of a history of uh, parenthood and childhood. Uh, you would say this, the pendulum has swung back and forth um, and uh, for some parents, perhaps overparenting is a reaction to their latchkey childhood.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of things going on. Um, there's some other really great analyses of sort of where we got where we are. Jennifer Sr. has a great one in her book, All Joy and No Fun. Um, it, it was really interesting looking at parenting and how it has swung back and forth, um, but I really think the, the biggest Motivators for the way we're acting right now come from the fact that we're having kids later. We're having kids after more education. Um, uh, Many kids look back on this sort of latchkey parenting or latchkey childhood that they had as, uh, you know, really fondly. I know actually I do because I have a lot of great adventures. But um, some people, you know, want to be feel like they're sort of making up for that for their own kids and so therefore they're you know scheduling lots of activities for them and making sure they're getting all these all this uh, time filled up and unfortunately what's ended up happening is we're taking away a lot of things that are really necessary for our kids like creative time quiet time time to be bored and if you look at the most recent uh, all of the, there's some really great research coming out right now on how we learn and how our brains function when we're just being quiet or contemplative and uh, it's re- really becoming quite clear that that downtime actually that we seem to be reacting against that sort of all that time we had sitting around on our own um, is really really important to learning. Um, so you know I don't think there's any one thing that that is to blame for sort of where we are right now with uh, parenting but I think wanting to create sort of this perfect perfect education for our children. And when I say education, I mean music lessons and science and soccer and all the sports that you could possibly pile on and music. Um, you know, that's a bit counterproductive when it comes to learning.
0: Here's an email from Alec uh, who says, I just barely tuned into this program. I'm uh, already very engaged. I don't know if it's been spoken about or it was intended to be discussed, but uh, how does this phenomena of overbearing parents relate to the obscenely high rate of suicide amongst uh, teenagers in this state, referring to, to Utah?
1: Right. Um, actually, there was a fantastic—well, we've been looking at this, a bunch of us, really cl- carefully, because, mainly because of the pa- um, Palo Alto suicide cluster that happened um, last year and sort of continues to, to happen. Um, You know, it's not only that there's a lot of pressure on kids, and there is a lot of pressure on kids, mainly because we feel as parents a lot of pressure to create this perfect childhood for our kids and these perfect resumes for our children so that they can get off to college. And, you know, the media has made us feel very pressured as as well because they're, They would like, the media would like for us to believe that it's impossible for our kids to get into college and that there's no way that they're going to get into the college of their choice, which just frankly is not true. It's more challenging right now to get into a few, like the top 50 colleges on the U.S. News and World Report, but it's actually not any more difficult to get into college these days than it ever was. Um, But the, the problem is, on top of that, we've asked kids to be perfect. We've asked them also to be perfect while not looking like they're breaking a sweat. We say things to them like, oh, sweetie, you got an A on that test and you hardly had to study, as if that's sort of the be-all, end-all, that it has to um, come easily to you And it has to be easy for you, otherwise you're not as smart as we have been telling you that we are. And that's what really stresses kids out. When I ask kids at my speaking engagements, what do you want me to tell your parents when they come? Um, Because I usually speak to students during the day and then parents in the evening. When I ask them what they want me to tell their parents, often the questions are things like, "Why do I why do you expect me to be perfect? Why do you expect me to never do anything wrong?" And it's really that kind of pressure is just devastating to a kid.
0: So, uh, so so a lot of pressure, expectation mm-hmm. to be to be perfect and that could lead uh, you know, can lead I, I could see to bad outcomes and up to and including suicide.
1: Well, and there are, there's a couple of other things as well. Um, the the uh, self-esteem movement was just an utter and abject failure. In fact, there's research showing that the kids that we most want to pump up with their with all of our praise, telling them how wonderful they are because we're hoping we can lift their self-esteem up. It turns out that in kids with low self-esteem, it actually makes their self-esteem go down because the the difference between what they're experiencing in the world, let's say if something's going wrong at school and they're not doing as well at school as they would wish, and then we're telling them constantly how brilliant and smart they are, they're having this terrible cognitive dissonance saying, wait a second, what you're telling me about how smart and brilliant I am is not matching up with what I'm experiencing day to day, and that's confusing for them. And then the other thing we tend to do is, you know, a kid will come home from school with an A and we'll flip out and put it on the refrigerator and call grandma and put it on Facebook and put it on Instagram and then they come home with an F and want to talk about it and instead, you know, we we're quiet. We withdraw our our support and that, if you talk to any any psychologist, what they'll tell you is that's something called withdrawal of love based on performance. And it's not something we mean to do. You know, when I'm at a loss for words, when my kid fails something, it's not because I love him less, but unfortunately, that's the way it gets received. And so we need to start talking a lot more about the process of learning rather than the end product. And, you know, that's easily easier said than done because our entire education system is set up to you know, to worship grades and scores. But if we can start focusing a lot more on the process over the product, um, we can take some big steps toward alleviating some of the anxiety that's leading to things like these suicide clusters, which are really frightening and, you know, only add to parents' anxiety. Uh,
0: I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about this fear of failure that we seem to Mm -hmm. be inculcating in in our children, uh, expressed so poignantly by that eighth grader um it it comes out of uh, our fears as parents uh, i suppose we don't want our children to experience that but you're saying this is important it's it's part of the part of the uh, the process what's what's gained through letting our children fail let them experience that
1: well <laughs> the the title of my book is is a little bit, I kind of have to do a little bit of explaining because it's not really about the failures itself. It's about our, the way we react to setbacks, the way we react to failures. Um, it, it turns out that there there's a lot of things I could go into, but the simplest way to explain it is that kids, when you look at kids who are constantly led um, from one solution to the next by a teacher, by a parent, we, we don't really give them the opportunity to get frustrated and have to work through their frustration. Um, those kids don't really build up any kind of emotional wherewithal to be able to rely on themselves for answers. These are the kids that need parents sitting right there with them when they're doing their homework at night. These are the kids that fall apart at the slightest hint that think something's not going right, like when my son freaked out over his shoe tying, or a kid that comes home you know, from gymnastics and says, well, that's it, forget it, I'm never doing gymnastics again because I'm terrible at it. Um, those kids are less teachable, those kids are unable to experience the benefits of something called um, desirable difficulties, which is a really valuable teaching tool that requires that, that that sort of requires that we give kids just beyond their something just beyond their comfort level, just beyond their level of ability, and let them struggle with it for a little bit. It's one of the most powerful things we can do as teachers to help kids learn better. Um, kids who are allowed to struggle a little are allowed to have some failures and have to fight back from them are allowed to make mistakes and feel the actual natural consequences of those mistakes those kids are better learners um so all of the things that we think we're doing to help them to set them up for success actually makes it so that they are not as good at learning and when i tell that to parents when i say look you bring your kid to my classroom your kid who's just brilliant and wonderful but can't ever be frustrated and just falls apart versus a kid who's absolutely average and yet has has this emotional wherewithal to sort of work through being a little bit frustrated, maybe take a breath, reread the instructions, maybe look at it from look at a problem from another direction. I would rather teach that absolutely average kid any day of the week and they're going to learn more, they're going to enjoy school more, and arguably, I, I think they're going to have a more interesting education, a more interesting life over the long run.
0: If You just joined us. We're uh, talking with Jessica Leahy, author of the New York Times bestseller, The Gift of Failure, and uh, it's now out in uh, paperback. You're welcome to join the conversation. I hope that you will. Uh, uh, maybe you want to talk about your your parenting, your children, perhaps your childhood in relationship to your your children's uh, childhoods, Uh, the number is 800-826-1495. That's toll-free anywhere, 800-826-1495. Or you can reach us by email to upraccess at gmail.com, Upraccess at gmail.com. And here's an email from Lita. Lita says, hello. As a new parent, I'd like to know when in a child's life Ms. Leahy thinks the method of parenting should start. I'm a new parent, and my child is still in the, quote, you can't spoil a newborn, end quote, phase. (laughs) But I do want to raise an independent, successful child and want to make sure I don't get into any bad habits early on. One of the best quotes on parenting I have heard but don't remember, the source is You're Raising an Adult, Not a Child. That's Lita.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and there is actually a wonderful book out called, right now about called um, How to Raise an Adult. It's sort of mostly about older children. But um, my... So, when I started writing my book, actually, I, I was really focused on middle school because it's this incredible opportunity to get let kids make mistakes. It's sort of what middle school is built around. But um, it, it was really interesting to go talk to teachers, nursery school teachers and kindergarten teachers and ask them, what do parents not realize their kids can do? And, and that you know, what can their kid do that their parents think they can't do? And these teachers would look at me and just roll their eyes and say, oh, my gosh, they can do so much more than their parents think they can do. Because we, at one point I wrote an article about um, this thing that really irritated me, and my son was pretending like he couldn't do stuff that I knew he could do. So I asked some people about it, some um, therapists about it, and I said, what's up with this feigned feigned helplessness thing and they said it's not feigned helplessness it's learned helplessness and you taught it to them so i think for really little kids the best place to start is this when they start coming to you and asking you what they think what you think of their artwork what, of the pictures they draw the best thing we can do to them is ask them what they think turn it back on them help them to de- de- create their own sort of internal locus of approval of what's good work and what's not good work, when I tried hard and when I didn't try hard. The other thing that I think is the most important thing that any parent really could do is do what Carol Dweck uh, recommends in her book Mindset, to help create what's called a a growth mindset in a kid, which is that intelligence is not something we're born with. It's not, I mean, we're not built in, we don't have like a built-in IQ when we're born. We have the ability to become smarter and smarter the harder we work the more we challenge ourselves with you know things that that are a little bit hard for us and you know for that mom who emailed in i think if she could just watch her kid you know learn how to walk and remember in that moment when her kid falls down we don't shut down and say oh well that's it our kid's never going to learn how to walk we say, okay, no, no, come on, get back up, keep going, um, and give them some hints as to how to do better next time. I mean, I think somewhere between those first steps and, and nursery school, we, we freak out a little bit and turn ourselves into these people that believe that if something doesn't come easily the first time around, maybe we're not great at it, and we worry about that in our kids. So the more this mom can remember that you know, this, this is a lifelong journey of learning, and it's it, it doesn't stop, you know, when the first couple skills are acquired. She just needs to keep keep thinking long-term and not thinking short-term about, you know, this little skill in this moment.
0: Let's uh, take another break. When we come back, I uh, want to go to middle school. That's where you've spent a lot of time. <laughs> uh, as I look back, uh, boy, there's some... There's some pretty harrowing memories. Yeah, but, uh, middle
1: school's hard, but I middle made it. Middle school's really hard.
0: Made, I'm glad but I made it through. for
1: teachers that for teachers that love middle school, they get that it's it's the best.
0: And and you right, and we'll talk about this when we come back from the break. That it's it middle school's a setup for failure. Yeah, um, and w- yeah. let's talk about that and, uh, and the fact that that's that's maybe a good thing. It uh, is a
2: great thing.
0: We'll uh, talk uh, much more about this. Uh, maybe get to talking about a Little House on the Prairie. That was your ideal, <laughs> right? Both as a as a child and as a mother, you you ha- took role models from from that uh, those books. and the the television series. Uh, We're talking with Jessica Leahy. The Gift of Failure is uh, the book, and you can join this conversation. Hope that you will. By the way, thanks, Lita, for for that uh, email, and uh, congratulations on your baby. Uh, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com is our email, upraxis at gmail.com. More following the break. I'm Jeremy Hobson. The offensive to retake Mosul from ISIS is a month old. Iraqi forces supported by U.S. airstrikes and advisors are inching closer to the city center. But progress has slowed because there are so many civilians trapped in the city. We'll check in on the fight for Mosul. That's next time on Here and Now.
2: Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio.
0: You know, laughter is this kind of clumsy, inarticulate way of expressing ourselves, but it's also kind of awesome.
2: Here's a question Why do we laugh? What is laughter for? On the next radio lab, we wonder about the mysteries of laughter from a baby's first laugh to an outbreak of contagious laughter in Tanzania. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. My guest for the hour is Jessica Leahy. Uh, she is an educator, speaker, and writer. She's been a, an English, Latin, and writing teacher in middle school and high school for more than a decade. She writes the bi-weekly Parent Teacher Conference Advice column for the New York Times and is a contributing writer to The Atlantic and appears as a commentator on Vermont Public Radio. She earned a law degree from University of North Carolina Chapel Hill with concentration in juvenile and education law. And she lives in New Hampshire with her husband and uh, two sons. Uh, the book is a New York Times bestseller, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, and it's uh, now out in uh, paperback. Uh, so Jessica Leahy, uh, you, you do write about middle school. You've spent a lot of time with middle school students, and, y- and you say this is middle school is a setup for failure and that that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, I, I've taught every grade through s- between 6th and 12th. I'm actually a high school teacher right now. Um, But there's something pretty magical about grades 6, 7, and 8 sort of right there in the middle where every single day they come in with some small thing they've done wrong or some miscalculation or some homework they left at home or a piece of paper that they can't find because, as it turns out, it's usually the the spoiler alert is it gets uh, crumpled up in the bottom of the locker. That's where the piece of paper is. Um, They just over and over again, they screw up and our jobs as middle school teachers it are, are to pretty much stand there with them and say, okay, yeah, yeah, you messed up. So what are you going to do next time? And Or how are you going to, you know, what kind of strategy are you going to come up with to help it, make it so that this doesn't happen again? And we try a strategy with them, and then that strategy doesn't work, and so we fix it a little bit so that it works better for them, and then they try that one again and over and over and over again. And, you know, that's, sort of the process with middle school we give them more than they can handle um, asking a kid you know between eleven and 14 to handle you know knowing how which materials they're going to need from their locker and managing their time in a plan book, that's really high-level stuff. And they just don't have what's called, um, the, they're called executive function skills. It's the skills that are handled by the frontal lobe of the brain, which is the last part of our brain to develop. Um, those kids are still developing that part of their brain, and, and a lot of kids don't really, they're not really fully cooked in that brain area until their early 20s so we're handing them way more than they can do. We wait for them to screw up. When they screw up, we help them and, you know, ad nauseum over and over and over again. So when parents step in, you know, the joke I tell is that often I'll I'll talk to a kid and I'll say, you know, "Oh man, you forgot that homework again." So, you know, what are you going to do? What's your strategy? And then a parent bursts through the door with the hand with the homework in their hand and the kid just points at the parent and says, "Well, you know, that's my strategy. I don't need to come up with anything else because" mom or dad is going to bring me my homework forever and ever. And that sort of interrupting the, the learning process is, is sort of what was happening more and more often with my students. And in fact, a lot of schools right now are so frustrated with that interruption that they have started um, creating rules that there's no more dropping off forgotten items after drop-off. There's a school in Orlando that did this last year. There's a school in Virginia that did it about a couple months ago um, where they're saying, look, if your kid leaves something at home, leave it there. We will not let you drop it off. We're just taking this out of your hands. Um, and, and that can be a really fair strategy. Uh, I think, you know, that's a good way to stop it in its tracks and say, look, no, really we are trying to teach your children not just math and English and writing, but um, everything. We're trying to teach them how to how to – Create strategies for lifelong success, not just for this one homework assignment.
0: I'm wondering um, how you would deal with a child who's just naturally, by personality, very fearful. Uh, I was such a kid, mm-hmm. and, and it, so it's important, to, you know, for my parents. And they did, you know, let me fail, and they, they weren't mm-hmm. overprotective, but I was just a very naturally fearful mm-hmm. kid, and so I guess it, it was especially hard for me to go through those things.
1: Yeah, actually, it's increasingly, that's what I'm hearing from a lot of parents is that they, uh, in fact, the the most common question I get uh, after a talk is, what should my child, my child is just a perfectionist and freaks out when things don't go perfectly the first time or is reluctant to try things that she thinks she's not going to be able to do right away. Um, And I wrote an article last year for the New York Times called How to Help Perfectionist Kids Worry Less and do more. And I recommend a couple of books in that article. One book is called When A Isn't Good Enough. And it talks about that sort of really anxious, fearful, perfectionist kid. And the problem is is that we used to (laughs) see a few kids like that each year. And now that's becoming a really common thing. A kid in our classroom that is afraid to try anything that she doesn't think she's going to be good at right away. Because that, again, harkens back to Carol Dweck's research on mindset. One of the easiest ways, if, you know, if a kid thinks she's smart because she's been told that she's smart, you know, we tell her constantly that she's smart, and she sort of has set up that expectation that she's supposed to be good at everything the first time she tries it, then, of course, she's going to freak out when she doesn't get something right the first time. And, of course, she's not going to take any risks. And, of course, she's not going to ask for the challenge problems or let on that she's confused about something in class because she doesn't want to blow that sort of label we've put on her as the smart kid. Um, And that's the huge disservice we're doing to kids in setting up this fixed mindset, this idea that you're either smart or you're not, and if you let people see that you're not perfectly easily smart all the time, that things don't come easily to you all the time, then you've blown it. Setting kids up for that... That's the the biggest disservice we've done to children. And
0: then, of course, you, uh, you do have kids who would have problems that you'd put in the the mental health. Area Mm -hmm. right, and so I guess you've got to discern, and that's maybe hard to discern if you're already filtering this through fear as a parent. Right, um, my kid needs professional help versus I just need to give them some experiences.
1: See, that's the other issue is that you know perfectionism used to just be perfectionism, and it's starting to slide into the obsessive compulsive disorder or obsessive compulsive personality disorder category more often. Um, You know, kids. I've had students that um, in the middle of a test will freeze up and not be able to move on to the next question because they're so freaked out about the fact that one of the questions is not perfect. And that is the time, you know, when basically we say that, you know, when when behaviors are starting to get in the way of everyday life, when a child's perfectionism or anxiety about not doing something right the first time starts to get in the way of enjoyment of life, then that's the time that you start to go, you start to think about needing some mental health um, help. The other thing I wanted to throw in there, though, is that One of the other big questions I get after a lot of my speaking engagements is, okay, well, this is all well and good for regular kids, neurotypical kids, but my kid has ADHD or my kid has nonverbal learning disorder, my kid has an auditory processing disorder, whatever the the special need is. And, you know, after a lot of talk with um, therapists and psychologists and special special needs (laughs) specialist people who work with these kids constantly, I'm hearing what's really important, actually, it's even more important for these kids that we let them understand that we think they're competent. The more we feel bad about their diagnoses, the more we feel bad about the fact that they're different, and the more we step in and say, I'm going to do more for you because I really don't want you to feel bad about your whatever, you know, insert disability here, um, we're actually teaching them to be helpless even more so than they would be if they couldn't handle something on their own. So um, if you, I wrote an article about that as well, and, and the psychologist that I talked to in that article said, you know, for these kids, that, especially kids with a newly diagnosed learning disability, it's even more important that we let them know that we think they can handle stuff and that we're not going to take all of the responsibility and all of the work away from them because we want them to feel better about themselves. Um, the last thing we want to do is take a kid that is going to have issues anyway and then also teach them to be helpless.
0: If you just joined us, we we're talking with Jessica Leahy. The the book is The Gift of Failure. You can reach the program. We have another about five minutes left at uh, toll-free 800-826-1495 or by email to Access at com. I want to talk a bit about uh, friendships. You have a chapter on friendships, uh, the, you know, the kids interacting with other kids. Fights, breakups, silent treatments as opportunities for growth, as, as you put it. <laughs> um, and then you juxtapose that with bullying. And, uh-huh. and you know, there's, uh, you, you know, as a parent, you have to, as a teacher, you have to discern the line there between good constructive failures in relationships and working through those and uh, the, the interpersonal re- actions that can be destructive. Mm-hmm.
1: Normal sor- social jostling, as I call it, you know that there's sort of the normal stuff, you know that that kids have to go through and um, trying on personalities uh, through relationships with friends, and we get so we tend to get so worried about. The, the friend that makes us a little nervous. You know, the kid comes home with a kid, that, uh, our child comes home with a kid that maybe has a weird hair color or a piercing or a tattoo, and we say, oh, my gosh, you know, this has got to keep my kid away from this kid. But actually, we should view this as an opportunity. Our kid is trying something on, trying on a personality without actually trying it on themselves. They're, you know, testing out things that they're interested in or things that they're curious about through other kids. And that can be a great thing because, you know, our kid is not running out. You know, your kid may not be running out to try drugs, but by talking about it with another kid, that can be a way to sort of try it on without doing the thing themselves and figure out what it is that fascinates them about that activity. And, you know, it's always scary when we see our kid, you know, being ignored or see our kid being excluded or see our kid, you know, have friends treat them badly. But we have to stay out of it, um, especially when it's just normal social jostling, because number one, going to the other parents and trying to force children into, you know, some forced pretend sort of friendship because it'll make us feel better only makes their social lives more miserable and makes things worse for them from a peer pressure perspective. Um, but also, you know, <laughs> so, uh, so my sons have had kids that they have been friends with that made me seriously nervous, um, and those kids have either moved on. My friend, my kids have either moved on in their friendships or those kids have grown up to be perfectly normal, healthy, you know, <laughs> wonderful people. So, you know, uh, friendships happen during different parts of their lives for different reasons. Sometimes when they were really little it was proximity, as they're getting older, it really is to try on different identities and see what works for them and what doesn't. And when we get in the way of that trying on identity, we could push them into a situation where they're not just trying it on. Maybe they're actually going to go for it because we're not giving them that opportunity to just sort of, you know, get that by proxy peek at a life that they're a little curious about. Um, We have to have a little bit more faith in our kids to make good decisions. Uh, Sometimes when I mentioned that kids will – Uh, Tell me what they want me to tell their parents. And one of the things that I I hear a lot is, you know, why is it that you're so positive I'm going to make the wrong decision all the time? Why don't you trust me a little bit more? And research shows that kids who are not trusted by their parents and who are more controlled by their parents lie to their parents Mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. So I think having a little bit of trust in our kids might be a good move, not just for our own mental health and their own mental health, but because, you know, we could be setting all of us up to have better relationships
0: we just have two minutes left I want to sum up have you sum up um, the, the goal you know the, the the goal we're trying to get to as you write in the book is self-reliance and resilience right and right. You, you quote Angela Duckworth who talks about mm-hmm. gr- grit
1: mm-hmm.
0: um so what would you in in just two minutes what how would you sum up what are the the top things you would tell parents that how to get their parent their, their kids to those uh principles those character
1: traits yeah, I think the very first most important one is to have a little bit more faith in the long-term process of raising a kid. It's not, you know, it's not about these day-to-day emergencies. It's about are we giving our kids opportunities to learn um, over the long run? And and have a little bit more faith in that idea that um, those everyday emergencies that seem so, uh, I just, I have to deliver this homework today or he's going to get a zero on this math homework, that actually that zero on that math homework could be an unbelievable learning experience for your kid over the long run. And don't deprive them of that just because it makes us feel better about our parenting. Um, You know, our kids are not the measure of our parenting. Our kids are the measure of themselves. And our best bet, I think, would be to raise the kids that that we have and not the kids that we wish we had or that we hope they could be or that... Um, we hope will be a reflection of us. Raise the kids that we have and help them learn and help them learn to be, you know, good people over the long run and not just for today.
0: The book is The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. It's a New York Times bestseller now out in paperback. Jessica Leahy is uh, the author and you can find her at JessicaLahy.com. Jessica Leahy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a great time.
0: And uh, we invite you to join us next uh, time. Uh, tomorrow, uh, we're going to t- talk about a very interesting uh, book. I had an opportunity to sit down with the author recently when she came to the Utah State University campus. It's called Real Genius. In the mid-1840s, Warner McCrary, an ex-slave from Mississippi, claimed a new identity for himself traveling around the nation as a Choctaw performer, Okotubby. He soon married Lucy Stanton, a divorced white Mormon woman from New York, who likewise claimed to be an Indian and used the name La Seal. Together, they embarked on an astounding, sometimes scandalous journey across the United States and Canada, performing as an American Indians for sectarian worshippers, theater audiences, and patent medicine seekers. We'll talk about identity and the shifting themes of identity and other uh, very interesting themes. The book is Real Genius. The author is Angela Polly hudson She joins me tomorrow on the program. Hope you'll be with us as well. Thanks for listening today.
1: Remember
2: MacGyver?
0: He will find himself, you know, in all kind of crazy places. All
2: right, MacGyver, think. And he will just look around. Rope, a smoke alarm. That dude made, like, jetpacks out of toilet rolls. Yes, yes. But against all the odds,
0: he can do it. It just might work.
2: I'm Guy Raz, making the most of what we've got. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio
0: next time on philosophy
2: talk the legacy of sigmund freud freud single-handedly changed the way we think about ourselves once and for all
0: yeah but his theories were completely unscientific not to mention
2: sexist and patriarchal sounds like your heart rings some resentment toward freud you want to talk about it Nah, i'm just gonna repress my feelings until the show the legacy of freud next time on philosophy talk join us tuesday at 4 a.m on utah public radio
0: after this year's election, the Democratic Party is going through a little bit of an identity crisis. Well, Trump as president is going to result in effectively a civil war within the Democratic Party. I'm Kai Rizdal. rebranding the party. will have that story. Today's numbers from Wall Street and all of the rest of the day's business news next time on Marketplace.
2: Join us tonight at 630 on Utah Public Radio.